Tipsy Thursday is a mini-series by Neuroethics Today, where host Catherine Bassel and co-hosts Muriel Kalkoch and Susan Kravitz have an open conversation about all things neuroethics, including neurotechnologies that exist, do not exist, and may one day exist. You do not need to be a neuro-somebody to tune in. Just grab your favorite drink, your headphones, relax, and enjoy this provoking and stimulating conversation. Welcome back, everyone, to our second episode of the mini-series, Tipsy Thursday. If you don't know what Tipsy Thursday or what Tipsy refers to, then you have to check out our first episode to find out and we break it down why we came up with this mini-series in the first place Mm -hmm. and why we referred to this as Tipsy with TIP being really a very important acronym when it comes to uh, neuroethics and the wave that we described on our first episode. So today we want to talk about something that we also very briefly mentioned during the first episode of season two, and this has to do with biomarkers. Biomarkers, which are molecules that can be found in our blood or in our tissue and that can actually give us some kind of sign or some kind of prediction of whether we are more likely or at increased risk of developing of a certain disease and disorder. And that could be you know, Alzheimer's disease. It could be epilepsy, which is the example that we gave during um, season one. But it also could be a variety of psychiatric disorders and a variety of neurological disorders that are really becoming more and more prevalent in our societies nowadays. So I want to start by asking my wonderful co-hosts, Marielle Kalkash and Susan Kravitz, about biomarkers for psychiatric or brain diseases in general. And why should we consider it as, a, as an interesting neuroethics topic to really put on the table? Why, why do you think it's even relevant? Well, I think just, like the, just to kind of go back to the very first example we gave um, in the first episode of season two was, you know, I, I don't want to focus purely on epilepsy, but just to kind of bring people up to speed in terms of like just an example of why we would even bring this up. Um, if you were to find out that you are at an increased risk for something like epilepsy, and then you were to get in your car and you were to have a seizure, create an accident, and if something were to happen to someone where... Um, would would you be held accountable because you got in the car knowing that you were at an increased risk for epilepsy? And that's just kind of the train of thought that we're kind of running with here. But again, that could be applied to any number of psychological or neurological kind of considerations. So I just want to kind of put that out there as a preface for kind of where we're going with this. And just to fill in that gap, so like a biomarker is something that allows the physician or researcher to identify this person having an increased risk for whatever pathology and if that in the case that this person had been diagnosed with epilepsy then what you're saying Susan is that they would be accountable because they know so you're talking about diagnosing someone with epilepsy based on a biomarker right is that correct correct yes exactly I think it's also more not just of diagnosing someone with epilepsy but also even of pre-epilepsy, if I can even risk, say that. Right, yeah, risk, just right. So, so a risk, okay, so really right, right, saying right, right. that you, you, you might have epilepsy, you know, in five, 10 years, right. but, but, but today, biomarkers can also be used for diagnosis, right. but I think 
when we're talking about these ethical implications, it's more about this risk or this pre-disease, this, this categorizing of this pre-disease right. that we are putting uh, uh, people under. And, and, and so, Susan, I think if I, if I can summarize the example that you gave on epilepsy, I would really make, make use of the term responsibility or accountability mm -hmm. when it comes to that. Like we are in many ways responsible for the information or the knowledge that we gather when it comes to certain diseases that we are at risk of. We become in many ways responsible of what we do with that information and how we go about that information in our everyday lives. And there, just to uh, really quick point at concrete who you're talking about, the who is important, who is responsible. Here you're talking about managing uh, the manipulation or managing information. There's the physician or researcher who yeah. gathers the information and transmits this, this information to the patient or subject that is involved in a research protocol. And then there's the patient or subject who receives this information about their own health, right? And what they decide to do. And I think that that two-step uh, part of the process in which this whole biomarker discussion takes place is important to consider because the first step um, has to do with where we are at with science and the ability for any physician or researcher to really know what is mm -hmm. what does this mean? What does this information mean? Do I have enough means or evidence to be able to explain to this person what this percentage that I'm telling him or her means exactly. or not? And then there's that limit of science, right? Which like, oh, well, yeah. maybe then that responsibility cannot be really transmitted to the person because yeah. not even science can respond to that first question. That's, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. And I even think that when we're talking about responsibility here, the responsibility in, in some way is shared. So we cannot talk about, you know, just the person uh, uh, getting informed that they are at risk or that they found some biomarker for Alzheimer's disease and that they are now responsible for that information on their own. I think what you mentioned, Marietta, is very important because then how accurate and the sensitivity of the tests that we currently have or that we might have you know in 10 years from now is also very important in being able to have those concrete conclusions that we can take seriously and apply in the clinic. Uh, yeah, and I, I think the one word that kind of stood out to me was percentage. You know, when, when you're the scientist, you're looking at like the numbers or the percentage of being at risk or whatever the data may be and at what percentage do you have an obligation to tell the person or at what percentage with that knowledge does an individual then kind of have to make decisions like where's the threshold with that you know like there's a very fine line there between you know being at risk but by by what you know by what number um I, so I, 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 I yeah I love that you mentioned that because actually this is also a question that gets me thinking a lot. I mean, I am, I am working in the field of biomarkers for post-traumatic stress disorder. And this question really haunts me. Like it, it, it is something that I also thought to myself, like are, where can we consider ourselves as, you know, scientists as committing a moral failure, right? We're going back to morality, but I mean, when are we committing a moral failure by not making use of the technology and of the knowledge that we have. But at the same time, where can we actually be also committing a moral failure by applying it and it's actually not being good enough to apply and not being good enough to actually 
deliver some some inf- important and some sensitive information that actually can improve the lives of people and not make it worse. I was going to say it's also you know the idea of like improving someone's life by telling that them that information. I mean. There are probably plenty of people who choose not to get tested for X, Y, or Z condition because they would just rather not know. And so I don't, you know, there's right. also this consideration of, you know, if you were going to be diagnosed with something, would you even want to know or would you just mm-hmm. want to keep living your life? And then what mm-hmm. kind of like moral or ethical responsibility do you have, especially if it's a condition that would affect others? Yeah. And I think that's yeah. why there's a fine yeah. line. There's a big difference between something that's going to be a very personal decision, like something involving cancer and wanting to get Mm -hmm. cancer treatment, which is a very you thing versus, Mm -hmm. you know, something like epilepsy or any other, or or even PTSD where you're looking at, you know, there could be a ripple effect of what that could do. And I just, I don't know that everyone would want to know. And so at what point is it like you have to, as a physician or scientist, inform someone about that versus you just want to, because you think it's the right thing to do. So, and actually in terms of, in neuroscience context, Susan, just like examples you just gave, Huntington's disease was one genetic disease, very Mm. fatal, terrible disease, which unfortunately with each generation, it tends to become, to show up, to express that people show the symptoms earlier. So if your parents, uh, if your dad had it like at 50, then you show it at 30. So in this context is very fatal. The quality of life is horrible. And the problem here is uh, that people started getting into our positions was that they were finding suicide, a high uh, rate of suicide among this population. So the genetic disclosure or the, the disclosure in, in the genetic counseling of do you have this gene or not, this was the ethical issue that came up. So I think that that's a very important consideration. But one thing that I think really helps, because there's, we're talking about two scenarios here that have come up, uh, one, the clinical and the research, right? The clinical in, this ter- in terms of actually getting diagnosed or pre-diagnosed, right? Or having been told with genetic counseling how much risk you have for, to have this disease. And in this case, well, there's a lot of autonomy plays a big role especially here in the United States, you know, because this is a, speaking of morality, a very big value for this society. Now, in terms of research, there's the role of the IRBs here in the US, the institutional review boards, which will ensure to ask all the right questions to researchers before a protocol gets approved to say, okay, where is this evidence standing today about this information you're about to share or possibly share with your subjects? And that's their job, right? To, to measure that the information that you're about to give them mind is not going to cause a more stress or a negative impact in their, in their life than the positive of having knowledge of this yeah. information. I don't know if there's Quality anything like this, Catherine, in Europe. What would your figure, your IRB figure there, or what would the, your experience be? I think, I think here there are two schools of thought in terms of you know on on one side you have you know the right to know and the right not to know right so if you as a patient are participating in a certain research study or even in the clinic and you give samples and they say okay we're going to screen it for this this and that but if we come up or come across incidental findings do you want to know 
and you have you have the choice to either say yes I do or no I don't. So this is this is one one area, and then you have another area where you have the right to know and the duty to tell, where a person has the right to know what comes out of that research, even if it's also also encompasses incidental findings. And that the researchers or the clinician has the duty to inform this patient or this participant about those incidental findings. So I think in both ways, you are kind of giving this autonomy or, or you're also giving this shared responsibility different weights. In, in, in the first scenario where we're talking about the right to know and the right not to know, you know you're giving this full control over to the patient or the participant. And when we're talking about the second scenario, the right to know and the duty to tell, you are actually giving giving the researcher and the clinician an obligation to actually convey this information regardless. You're not giving so much attention to whether the participant and the patient are open to knowing or not. So I think it's a bit different, but I think I, I really find it very interesting how in the States this is being conducted, how making sure that the evidence that are that are present are enough to be able to communicate a certain finding to the patients or participants. And the ask, incidental, oh. sorry, the in, just to clarify, the incidental findings is also part of the informed consent process so that that they will require you the irb will require you to have that section in your informed consent so that you can be explicit about this with your subject or participant and they know that if you were to find whatever finding you will share or you will not and why or whatever the terms are are very explicit and whether you would want to be, them to share it with your physician yeah. or not. Yeah. Or when to, to be honest, would. I don't know if they really make a thing of it here in Europe. I mean, I, I, I've seen several templates of informed consent and they don't all look alike and they don't all include the same information, the same questions, the same. I mean, I would think, I would think that in any informed consent, you would have to include, you know, this, this, this statement. Do you want to know about anything about incidental findings? And I don't see it. Maybe not yet. Maybe in just in certain areas. And that could be, you know, maybe where those, the tests are even more solid. So for example, if we're talking about, you know, breast cancer genes or like like you mentioned, Huntington genes. So when, when we're talking about those really pretty solid monogenetic diseases, probably, then maybe there is a mention. But I feel that when we're talking about psychiatric diseases, for example, there is no mention of that. Even though I have to say the technology is not you know sensitive enough to say, okay, we already know what is uh, causing uh, this or that uh, uh, psychiatric disease, but still, this is this is where I feel there is a bit of there. There is more that can be done. There is more information that can be shared. I agree. But we have to also be careful about that. But How? I still yeah. feel the history of psychiatric diseases and mental illness has all those taboos about having a mental illness. I think in many ways, they still exist. They are still considered as, you know, diseases of the mind and, and they are not really considered as, you know, cardiovascular diseases. Like depression they are not, or something or, along yeah, those lines. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to ask you ladies, and I also would just kind of pose this to anyone listening. It's like, would you want to know and I, I'm curious you know Catherine you know would, would you want to know Marielle would, would you want to know if you were in the patient standpoint would you want to know what's going on 
Marielle, go ahead. I, I need to think about that. <laughs> I'll put you on the spot. Excuse me. I was me. hoping you'd go first, though. Okay. Actually, I can I can I was, give it a go. Okay. I, I'm I not saying I have an answer either. I'm just curious. No, no, no. no I've but been I thinking about it the whole time, huh? but I, I haven't come no, up with it. <laughs> so I've, I've thought about that, definitely. Um, and I think there's one thing that I always, you know, because I'm, I'm involved in those discussions, I always say, oh, but the, but the patients, by informing them, we are actually going, might, you know, introduce some kind of anxiety. Trauma you know, anxiety, and anxiety, yeah. Yeah. And, and this might probably even trigger the, the onset of yeah. a certain. Right. But, and, and, and I think this is a bit of a reflection of how I think about it. So I think if I would want to know, but then I would get that information. I honestly think, given I know my personality and I know how I think, I think this will kind of create some kind of anxiety. Oh, yeah. Right. Like, oh my shit. God, when, when is it going to happen? Like, in three years? In three? Am I, am I, am I already there today? and I don't is know about today? it? <laughs> really? No, I mean, you know and, and this is my, my biggest fear, to be honest. This is my biggest concern. I think I would want to know only if it was something that there was like a treatment or like a yeah, plan also. of action for. So for me, like I'm very wishy-washy about this. I'm like, okay, well, if you're going to tell me that there's something wrong with me that I can do absolutely nothing about, yeah. um, I think I probably wouldn't want to know. But if there was, you know, for instance, with breast cancer, you know, if, if you identify certain genes, like there are, there is kind of like, the order of operations of things that you can do to then take action. And so I think if it were something that there was an order of operations, there was kind of like a treatment option or plan or whatever it may be, I think I'd want to know. But otherwise it's like, yeah, no, I would, I would absolutely lose my mind about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I, I agree on, um, and I think Catherine, I can relate to what you said in terms of, um, or I don't know, maybe a lot of scientists or people who are in the uh, medical community would feel drawn to say they'd want to know because as a physician with a background of understanding or as a scientist to understand that disease you want to know and then you also have the tools of understanding what that means at the as much as you can right with the latest evidence so you have that context and ability to say okay I'll just research papers and like what does this mean what are others like studies are are out there what's my you know mortality rate or whatever things are associated right not doing that though exactly and no the worst part Susan though is that other people would too, but they would use Google Doctor, Google whatever. Exactly. They would get really stressed out about Yahoo Answers. It would turn they have clickbait. to offer it to them, right? Yeah. yeah. It would turn the other clickbait. thing, this is this also, I think it makes us makes us turn to again informed consent process, IRBs, regulations of sharing information um, with patients and subjects is how you do it, and which is how we started this conversation, right? So one thing is making sure the the figures that have to make sure and when to share them but also how matters so much because the context that for in this case Catherine and I would have in the neuroscience or medical neuro world in terms of having that information of a neuro disease or psychiatry Mm -hmm. disease other people would have to be able to be put into context and that's not easy often for scientists and physicians to do like they might have a lot of knowledge in the topic, but they don't necessarily have the skills to share that but information. I think, but I think right? this, is, this is very important that you mentioned that because this is where, you know, either they should get some training on that or they should involve people that have training like counselors, you know, genetic counselors or right. 
any kind of counselors to actually do that because I really believe it is very harmful and really it can harm a person. And we, we mentioned introducing anxiety by introducing such information over an appointment at the doctor's office where you think you're coming for a, for a quick checkup and then you leave with you know, a load of information, of sensitive information. That's life-changing. That's really life-changing. And then what if, what if it's wrong for some reason? Like what if you're told X, Y, or Z, and then you go change your whole life and you're like, actually, we were wrong. Or actually the percentage isn't as high or the likelihood isn't as high. And like, you know, you you could like find, you know, walk in totally fine, walk out with a diagnosis and like quit your job, sell your house, go travel the world. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you're like, oh, you said that there was only percentage of yeah. this happening. Like, oops, like, let me, you know, there's like, I think, I think there's a movie, there's a movie on uh, that, that's very similar to that. The one of Queen Latifah, she plays a central role in it. And I think eventually the they found out that, I expected you to say. actually, actually it's funny because eventually they found out that the scan that was taken was actually for a sick dog. And the doctor <laughs> had given her, you know, that scan saying like, oh, you're going to die. You know, you're like terminal, you're, you're, you're terminally ill and at any time now. And she just went and lived the best time of her life but then <laughs> we all just be living like our best yeah, okay. life anyway. i think i'm too much details watch the movie <laughs> i think that's the wine talking yeah, right. so <laughs> <probably>. <laughs> but but hey yeah no i i just wanted to say real quick no. that yes i think that there's a really important part of on how in, in the how to explain things that it's not percentages as susan had already mentioned it's how, what does this mean in, in terms of practical terms, right? And there's this whole area of neuropalliative care that is also, we're not talking mm-hmm. about palliative care, but that they have that training to be able to relate to the person you're talking to in, yeah. in practical terms. And one other thing that I want to uh, comment on that Susan just brought up is the, the fact that we need as scientists and uh, physicians to learn how to deal with uncertainty right Mm. how to communicate that you don't know right there's the fact that you know and there's all the percentage of things that you don't know and you need to be able to be very clear and honest uh with the person you have in front of you sorry this is as far as we know we might not you might end up selling all your house and everything and then come back and you're fine and i don't know about anyone else but i personally find that a lot of people even if they don't think in terms of black or white a lot of people hear in terms of black or white, like, you know, the, yeah, your, your systems and your brain that like kind of either slow you down or like make quick decisions about things. I feel like most people would like have knee jerk reactions to this information and then just stop listening. So the ability to convey the percentage or the risk or the likelihood might just get drowned out. And all someone hears is that they've got something or that they're, you know, they hear the word depression or Huntington's or cancer or whatever, and then they just stop listening. And so the ability to communicate those risks or the uncertainty effectively, I feel like it gets really tricky because our brains kind of are hardwired to just make sense of something as quickly as possible at a certain point. Mm -hmm. And I just, I feel like it'd be really hard to untangle that for the average, not prone to stepping back, critical thinking human beings and you know, not to put anyone down, but I, I do think that a lot of us have those knee-jerk reactions. It doesn't matter how educated or smart you are. We still hear something Definitely. and we have an association with it. And so that kind of ties back into the idea of that anxiety. And, you know, I don't, I don't need anyone to tell me anything about my body or my likelihood. Like I'm perfectly capable of stressing myself out. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. That's that's a very good point. I think I think you know talking about about this 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 topic biomarkers, 
and the neuroethics discussions that come with biomarkers in specific relation to psychiatric diseases or neurodegenerative and neurological diseases, the, I think we just covered one spectrum, right? Yeah. Because I think if we even go into each and every individual disease or disorder, we can actually have a totally different discussion. Because as we said, if we're talking about epilepsy, we talk about accountability, we're talking about responsibility. If we're talking about psychiatric diseases in general, we are talking about this uh, sensitive case of incidental findings, the right to know, the right not to know, how do we deal with the patient? How do we communicate that to the patient? But even talking about more broadly, are we ready as a community to actually introduce such tests to the clinic and actually make use of them, even though, for example, we have a certainty of 80%, 85%. Is that enough? Shouldn't we, you know, go higher? Or in the same time, asking the question, are we, you know, waiting too long? Shouldn't we already make use of something, even if it's going to give us an 85% estimate? I mean, we're talking about numbers here, but I think I think you get the point. And then if we're talking about also other disorders like depression or schizophrenia or post-traumatic stress disorder. We have even other discussions that might arise. Like, you know, are you obliged to take a biomarker test for those diseases if you want to apply to the military or if you want to apply to any job? Are you, are you supposed to take those tests? Do, do, does your employer have the right to ask you to, to take those tests and see whether you are more prone or more at risk of, you know, in the case of the military of post-traumatic stress disorder? Well, yeah, sorry, you can't, you can't become a soldier because, yeah, you are, you are more vulnerable, you're more susceptible to this disease. So those are also questions. So if we think about it, I think the neuroethics of biomarkers is also another big umbrella right? And we notice that this discussion here that we're having now is just, you know, the tip of the iceberg. There's I, much I, more. There's so many places you could go with it, but I do, I have to come back because you just said something about like employers. Yeah. And I just, I mean, I don't want to unpack that right here, right now necessarily, <laughs> but I do think it's fascinating. The idea of yeah. like that angers me. Like I had a visceral reaction at the thought of like an employer being able to ask for certain test results uh, that I don't know why I'm having my own knee jerk black and white thinking around that and I'll own it because that's just, you know, <laughs> we're all susceptible to it. But, you know, that frustrates me, the idea that, you know, if I'm at a higher risk of depression or other things like that, that I would be less employable. Like, ooh, I, I just, yeah. that's a whole other thing to consider. But I don't think that we're prepared right this moment from a no. societal standpoint to deal with the long-term implications of this. And I think that's, again, why we want to stimulate this discussion now, because mm -hmm. as these things become more prevalent, you know, whether it be the military, your job, you, you know, there's your partner, like maybe your future partner would want yeah. to know what you're at risk for. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. this is just getting, you know, this is where it starts yeah. to just kind of get huge and expand out. But I mean, we're not set up, you know, what do you want to have, like a genetic profile, like dating app or something like that? You know what I mean? Like, at what point is it like, we're just not, we're at capacity right now. And I don't think we're prepared for it, I guess is what I'm saying. That, that's it. Yeah. I mean, even if you think about it, right, we're talking employers, but even if we talk about positions, in oh, part, yeah, right. I, I even read an article, I even read an article at some point, should we screen, you know, presidential candidates for Alzheimer's? Um, or anything else. How about for morality? Be, How about right? And then treat with morality appeals, if not. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good <laughs> one. My first participant, yeah. 
<laughs> no, but really, I mean, if we really get into that discussion, we can, we can talk about it in so many different ways. But this, just like you said, Suzanne, just, you know, stresses on the fact that this is a discussion that we should be having now, that we should be thinking about, that we should a bit ruminate on, like, okay, what, what do we think personally? I think, you know, today as a listener, if you're listening to this, you know, you're might probably not really interested so much in, okay, employer, employee, probably you think that's out of reach and you're probably right. But let's think of what, what we first touched upon, you know, in terms of incidental findings, if you're going to the clinic, to your doctor, to, to make some tests, but also if you decide to participate in a research study, ask yourself the question, do you, do you want to know? Do you not want to know? Do you think you should know? Do you, do you probably want to let your children know? Because in many cases, I, I, I mean, this, this goes back to what I read, but I read an article where a daughter was actually very upset with her mother that she did not inform her or that she did not decide to take such a test when it came to breast cancer because mm. she would have liked to know already early on if she was predisposed. So, I mean, mm. this goes back into another discussion of some kind of also accountability when it, when it comes to your own family. Does, does, do mothers, should mothers inform that their daughters that they are in, at risk of having a certain disease or a certain mental illness, for example? I mean, we know that many mental illnesses are also hereditary and there is some kind of genetic predisposition. Mm -hmm. Those are questions that we can, without being neuroethicists or without being neuroscientists, we can ask ourselves, we can discuss over a glass of wine with our friends, with our social network. Those are really important discussions that we can already start having now and today. Everyone thinks it doesn't apply to them until it does. And that's kind of the exactly. point of stimulating this entire conversation, whether it be about mm -hmm. the morality pill or whatever. No one thinks that, uh, you know, it matters to them or it's, it doesn't apply to them until it does. And I think that's kind of the key moment there. It's like, until it does. And uh, this might not be uh, completely or directly related, but if you guys want to do a little trial on uh, this application that an ethicist, or an ethicist researcher developed Niels Waters in Australia, in Melbourne, he developed a biometric mirror, which is a tool which offers the public, the general audience, to see what it would look for AI to look at your picture and uh, give your employer information about what your picture says about you, what your oh, that's already being used here. I mean, I can't yes. tell you how many like video interviews, uh, one-way video oh, wow. interviews that I've submitted, and I've been told by people who are in some of these industries that I mean, we're we're already right there with, you know, the use of AI potentially like looking at like your pupil dilation or like whatever your behavior or your mannerisms may be during like a video interview. And then like that being like the first kind of screen that you have to pass through before you even get to talk to another human being or be considered by a human being. I mean, well, it's kind of like at what point are you just tripping like the algorithm? Right. Then it would be a whole, a whole other level. Huh? I'm going to need think. more wine to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> and health insurances, leave alone health, health insurances, yeah. right? Oh, oh yeah. we even left that discussion. <laughs> uh -uh. Oh man, <laughs> that's, that's, that's also, oh. Bring me some those tequila. Are, I think th I think the insurance company will, will need a stronger drink. Wine, wine is, is too yeah, soft. It's not, it's not, not enough. <laughs> So with that, I want to, unfortunately, I think, I mean, you know, end this discussion, but I, I really think that 
th there is no time limit to discussing this, not even an hour, even if we open up the discussion for one hour, I don't think we will be done with that. But already, we hope we, we, we inspired you, but also stimulated you to start thinking a bit about those considerations, to start thinking a bit about these questions, which have a lot of effect on your daily life and on your future and in your future decisions and considerations that you want to take when it comes to your health and also comes to your close by relatives. And we hope you also enjoyed your glass of wine with us. Oh, oh, I hear that. Oh, <laughs> cheers. Nice. Cheers, ladies. Wow. Cheers. Stay critical, no matter how tipsy. <laughs> Thank you very much for tuning in. Most importantly, stay curious, stay critical. And till next time. Tipsy Thursday is a mini-series by Neuroethics Today, where host Catherine Bassel and co-hosts Muriel Kalkoch and Susan Kravitz have an open conversation about all things neuroethics, including neurotechnologies that exist, do not exist, and may one day exist. You do not need to be a neuro-somebody to tune in. Just grab your favorite drink, your headphones, relax, and enjoy this provoking and stimulating conversation.